Good evening. And a warm welcome to the service this evening. Those who are visiting, especially welcome uh, with us. It's good to see some visitors and it's good to see some who have been away for a while and uh, who are back for a few days. Uh, so, and it's also good to know that there are some who are watching at a distance online. Uh, so let's worship God as we come together. Nu 
If you could turn with me please now in your Bibles to uh, Esther chapter 6. So we're following the the story of uh, uh, Esther uh, going through these chapters. I'm conscious there's quite a few here tonight who uh, haven't gone through the series. But uh, I can try and cut this very short. Uh, We see in the book of Esther uh, this uh, young girl uh, who is who is um, kidnapped, essentially, and she's taken uh, off uh, to be uh, in the king's uh, harem. Uh, she becomes the queen, and, um, and yet she's a Jew in, in the middle of the Persian Empire. Uh, she is uh, a Jew. She's a, 
she's one who believes in God and she's been brought up uh, by, her, uh, by a man who, who kind of acted as her father, a relation of hers called Mordecai. Uh, he's brought her up to know uh, about God. He's brought her up to, to believe in God. So they're both Jews who are in the middle of this Persian Empire. And uh, Esther comes into this position of power as the queen. Uh, Mordecai is a kind of low-level civil servant. Uh, and, um, and then we have this evil character who walks on scene called Haman, uh, who's kind of like the, the prime minister uh, in that time. He has the ear of the king, and basically he has control of the king. Whatever he asks for, he seems to get. And uh, Mordecai and Haman clash, and... Um, Haman determines that not only will he seek to kill Mordecai, uh, who Esther loved, but uh, he, he wants to kill all the Jews, which would take in also Esther. So Esther realises uh, she is in this position as queen, and she can step forward and try to, to speak on behalf of her people. Uh, it's a very risky thing she does, but uh, she takes that risk, and uh, she begins to speak to the king. Uh, she hasn't yet told him exactly what she's asking for. Um, but uh, we're reading from chapter 6, and uh, at chapter 6 we hit the point of crisis, because um, Haman, who has this decree that's in the future to have all the Jews killed, uh, he's just clashed again with Mordecai, and he's got hate in his heart for Mordecai. And so he's, uh, he's been up all night, and he's been having gallows built, uh, so Mordecai can be, can be hanged. And uh, it looks like Mordecai is just in his last few hours to live. So there's a crisis point here, and we're joining the book at this point. So Esther chapter 6 and uh, verse 1. Well, let's read in from chapter 5, verse 14. It won't be on the screen, but let me just read the last couple of verses. Uh, Haman's wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, uh, as he raged about Mordecai, Have a gallows built, 75 feet high, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go with the king to the dinner and be happy. The suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the gallows built. That night, the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers, who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honour and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows he had erected for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honour? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honour than me? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honour, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honour and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honour. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai, the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led them on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honour. Afterwards, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in, covered in grief. 
and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. Amen. And may God bless that reading of his word to us. Let's pray for a moment as we come back to God's word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you once more that we are found in this place. We thank you that you've given us the desire and the opportunity, uh, the freedom to be able to come and worship, to gather together in this way. And we thank you, Lord, that uh, in your love you have called us to come. We thank you that uh, we hear the words of Jesus so often as we turn uh, to your word, where he says, Come to me, all who are weary and who are burdened, and I will give you rest. We thank you that we can come with our praises uh, to the Son, uh, to kiss the Son, as it says in the Son. We thank you that when we are believing in Jesus, uh, the wrath of God is turned away. We thank you that when our faith is in Christ, uh, we are promised that we will not perish, but we will have everlasting life. So give to us faith, we pray. Uh, those who are here as we listen and as we worship, and those whom we love who are not here, uh, those who may have no interest in the things of God, those who may be in a state of rebellion, even as we uh, read of and sang in the psalm. We're conscious that there are so many in this world who shake their fists at God. Perhaps some even in our own families, in our own friend circles, uh, who openly will speak against the name of God, and we pray for them. We ask, Lord, that you would touch their hearts. We pray that you would open their eyes, that they would see the reality of sin and uh, the urgency of, of reaching out in faith to Jesus as Saviour. We think of the prayer even that we read this morning of the dying thief, remember me, and the assurance that he was given from Jesus that he would see him that day in paradise. So we pray, Lord, for those who are far from you, that you would draw them close, those who are lost still, that you would save them. And for those of us, Lord, who are walking with you, who are saved, we pray that you would sanctify us, that you would make us more like Jesus, that you would make us more willing day by day to, to serve you, to be ambassadors for Jesus, to be uh, those who, having received grace, uh, are willing and eager to do the good works that you prepare in advance for us to do, not because we think that these will save us or keep us, but as an expression of our love for you. Pray, Lord, for our world uh, that is so clearly in rebellion against you. We read in the psalm of, of rulers coming together uh, to stand against you, and we, we see it all too often. We see it in our own nation. We see it across many nations. And we see the reality of sin and the, uh, the, the sorrow that that brings into this world, the suffering, wars and rumours of wars. We see uh, the atrocities happening in Ukraine as men determine that they will be God, that they will have first place. We pray that you would have mercy on us, that you would be at work, Lord, in this world. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have promised that you will return and there will be a new heavens and a new earth. There will be no more war and no more sorrow and suffering and pain. And so we say, as it says at the end of the Bible, come, Lord Jesus. May each of us be ready for that day. May each of us meet Jesus as Saviour and not have to stand before him as, as the one who judges us and who sends us away with these words, depart from me. I never knew you. We ask, Lord, that you would bless us in this time of worship. We pray that you would open our eyes and, 
open our understanding and stir our hearts that we may know that you are God and that you are with us. And we pray for others you meet as we do. We think of Farrakhan as he opens your word in Leverborough just now. We ask that you would speak through him. And for other denominations around us and the congregations that we are connected to, uh, those who are visiting with us, wherever the, 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 the Bible is opened, wherever Christ crucified is preached, we pray, Lord, that you would be adding your blessing and building your church. And again, Lord, we pray for those in particular need, uh, those who are sad, those who are grieving, uh, for loved ones lost in past days and weeks and months and years. We are aware of so many uh, who are struggling with grief and we uh, bring them to you in prayer and ask that you would comfort them. And we pray especially for Kathy Ray and for Nana tonight, that you would be near to them. We pray for others who may be uh, excited and anxious about the week ahead. Uh, you know uh, what is ahead of us and we ask, Lord, uh, that you would give us grace sufficient for each day. We pray especially for uh, Michaela and ENA and Miriam this week as they uh, look forward uh, to the due date. And we ask, Lord, for your protection uh, over them. And we pray, uh, we thank you that we can pray for little children uh, that uh, are still in the womb that we have not met, but whom you know. And we ask, Lord, uh, that your hand would be upon all uh, such for good. And for Michaela especially and uh, Ian as they think about this week ahead, we ask that you would go before them and that you would be close to them. So hear our prayers and open your word to us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If your Bibles are open at uh, Esther chapter 6, that would be helpful. One thing I think that's helpful uh, for us to think about every time we open uh, the Bible is that uh, when we open the Bible, God is speaking. And when we open the Bible, this is a book where God has chosen to reveal himself uh, to us. We can know him. And when we think about that, and when we keep that in our minds, it will change our approach uh, to Scripture. It won't be just a case of us, well, I have to read this chapter before I go to sleep. Uh, we pick up the Bible and we're, we're saying in prayer, uh, Lord God, would you, would you show more of yourself to me? Speak into my life, please. Help me to know you more. And when we think about uh, the, the world of celebrity or the world of sport or the world of music, there are people that we, that we watch and admire uh, and, and we might follow. Uh, but we'll never have a conversation with them. Uh, we'll, we'll never get close to them. We'll never get to know them. But the amazing thing is that the, uh, the one who is infinitely greater than, than any celebrity or, or, or any other person, uh, the one true God, he wants us to know him. Uh, and even though in the book of Esther, uh, the name of God is not mentioned once, it's a fact for those who are maybe here for the, uh, for the first time, uh, God's name is not mentioned anywhere in Esther. And even though in the book of Esther there's no, there's no miracles, we can't uh, point to, um, to sections in the book of Esther where there are supernatural miracles. And in the same sense that we see Jesus doing supernatural miracles, uh, although there's no evidence of that in the book of Esther, it's clear that uh, God is here in this book and in these events and, and, and he's behind the curtain and he's active and he's working. It says in Romans 8.28, uh, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Uh, who have been called according to his purpose. And we see that in this chapter even. Uh, God is working. Uh, God is involved. Uh, the hand of God can be, can be traced through all the events of this story. And I want to, to think uh, in the 20 minutes or so that we have about the character and the work of God as we see him uh, in Esther chapter 6. And the, the first thing we see is that God never sleeps. We are people who need to sleep. There are some people who come to church to have a, have a little snooze. We need to sleep. The girls were desperate for me to watch a film a couple of weeks ago. I really tried to watch it, but 10 minutes in, I was away. I had to sleep. But God never sleeps. 
And we sang that in, in Psalm 121. God does not slumber, uh, he does not sleep. And sometimes God is at work in the midnight hour to keep others awake. And that's what we see as we begin this uh, sixth chapter. It says that night the king, that's uh, Xerxes, he could not sleep. And as far as we know, um, up until this point, King Xerxes has had no problem sleeping. Uh, the, the night before that, we assume he slept. And the night before that, we assume he slept. We know from looking at Xerxes in the previous chapters that his conscience is not particularly sharp. He can give the order to, to wipe out a whole nation of Jews. And it doesn't really seem to affect him. He, he does it whilst he has a glass of wine and a couple of courses of dinner. You know, it seems... As we look at Xerxes, that uh, he was beyond being kept awake from a guilty conscience. But on this particular night, the king could not sleep. And on the one hand, you could say that's just a small detail. It's not all that interesting. But uh, on the other hand, this detail uh, was key to the salvation of all the people of God. And we'll, we'll see the workings of that as we, as we step through the verses of this chapter. But uh, the, the first point I want to take in application is it's just the encouragement that we receive from this fact that we see in God that he does not sleep take encouragement from the fact that uh, God does not sleep he's always awake he's always at work Uh, he'll never miss your call when you pray you're never off his radar I remember before we came to Harris just before we came to Harris um, we were told as we were changing addresses and all that kind of stuff we were given the address of the the place that we'd be staying in two kilos and so um, I remember one night thinking I think I'll look on Google Earth put in the address in the postcode and see if I can see a picture of it. And so you could look on Google Earth and you could go along the Kylos Road. You could get to see where Cathy Ann is and Myrtle Farragher and you could see the Scalpy Bridge and you could creep a wee bit, of, a wee bit further along. But when you got to the cattle grid, uh, that was it. You couldn't see any more. We think Google sees everything. Well, Google couldn't see two Kylos. It was off the radar. But there's nowhere we can go and there's no situation that we can face uh, that God cannot see. He doesn't slumber and miss things because he's tired and jaded. If you're his child, he has your back. He's watching you. He hasn't forgotten you. And there's, there's great assurance in, in knowing that. So that's the first point. God never sleeps. The second point we can note here is uh, that God never forgets. So let's just continue on in verse 1. We see that on that night the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honour and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. You know, it seems that Mordecai, who did this great thing, brave thing, uh, he was forgotten. So let's think about this a wee bit more. The king on this night, he can't sleep. And so he orders... Um, something that will help him sleep. And because he's the king, uh, he's got lots of options. He could have ordered a a very large drink to help him sleep, but he doesn't do that on that night. He could have ordered for the the, the musicians to come in and play soothing music, as kings often did in that that, uh, era, but uh, he doesn't do that. He could have sent for uh, one of the many women that were in his harem to come and accompany him, but he doesn't do any of these things. Uh, On this night, when he can't sleep, he ordered the book of the Chronicles, that the record of his reign, uh, the, the, the biography of his life to be brought in and read to him, uh, which says a lot about the massive ego of the man. He's so self-obsessed, uh, he, he wants to hear more and more about himself. So he orders the book to be, to be brought in on this night that he can't sleep. 
Now, hit pause for a moment, just as we think what's going on uh, behind the scenes. If we step back the chapter, uh, we can remember that Haman, at this point, whilst the king can't sleep, is plotting to kill Mordecai, Esther's father figure. In fact, at this point, when uh, Xerxes can't sleep, uh, there would be the noise of construction from the 75-foot gallows that were being built, uh, on which Haman had determined Mordecai would hang before the day was out. So all that's going on in the background, whilst the king can't sleep. And thinking now about Xerxes, he's, he's lying there in his bed, he's in the palace, the book of the Chronicles is, is brought in, and it just so happens that the section that was read on this particular night was a section that told the story of how Mordecai had exposed a plot to assassinate the king. You could go back to chapter 2, we're not going to just now, but uh, in chapter 2 we read about two, two thugs, they sound like thugs, Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's officers. They sound like a couple of bulky doormen. And uh, they are plotting to kill Xerxes. And uh, Mordecai overhears the plot. And so he alerts Esther. And Esther passes it on to the king. And to cut a longer story short, the king's life is saved. And the story was recorded in the annals in the presence of the king. We're told about that in chapter 2, verse 23. And when we read it, it just seemed like an unnecessary detail. Why is that in there? But now we see how important this is. Because the annals, the record of the, the reign, was being read to Xerxes. And they come to the section uh, where Mordecai's good works are, are recorded. And so Xerxes asks in verse 3, what was done for Mordecai? This was a brave thing that he did. Uh, he saved my life. How did we honour him? It was a, a reward culture in that place. Kings prided themselves on giving uh, lavish rewards. It made them look good. But it seems in, in the case of Mordecai, uh, there was no reward. Nothing was done. Uh, his good work was forgotten by Xerxes and by all uh, the staff that Xerxes had around him. But the point is, it wasn't forgotten by God, because God never forgets. He doesn't slumber, he doesn't sleep, he doesn't miss things. And when it comes to service, you know, even a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus, he misses nothing. He forgets nothing. And so on this sleepless night, the unseen hand of God turns the pages of the book of Chronicles, so that what Mordecai did would be remembered, and Mordecai would receive the honour and the favour that he was due. And that's something else that uh, should encourage us and um, motivate us. You know, in this world, we can sometimes try to do good. And uh, sometimes the good things that we try to do, they, they, can be, they can be missed completely. Sometimes you can try and do something good and it's totally misunderstood and it's taken the wrong way. And sometimes when you try and do good, uh, you end up thinking, what's the point in even trying? But the thing is, when we determine to do something good... Uh, we're not doing it for people, for Christians. We're not doing it to get a round of applause from the people around us who are hopefully watching, we might think, in our minds. When we do good, we do good uh, for God. The, the, the left hand shouldn't know what the right hand is doing when we're seeking to do something good because we're not doing it for people. We're not doing it for applause. We're not doing it for likes. We're doing it for God. And he always sees. And he never forgets when it comes to our service of him. Another wonder, just before we move on from uh, this point, is that the same God who never forgets our, our, our good works, and we're doing it uh, to, to serve him, uh, is the God who determines that when we repent of our sin, he will not remember it anymore. Hebrews 8.12, God speaks and he says, For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. What, what a God we, we worship. He's the God who, who, who determines that he never forgets the, the good that we want to do for Jesus' sake. 
but he's also the God who says, I will not remember the sin that they have confessed and that the blood of Jesus has dealt with. Uh, This is our God. This is his character. This is how he works. God never sleeps. God never forgets. The third point is that God's timing is, is perfect. So get back to the story. Let's just picture the scene. Xerxes, as it comes into the the, 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 as the morning light starts to break, he's in a state. And he's in a state uh, because Mordecai has been overlooked. Xerxes' life was saved by this brave act of Mordecai. Uh, and it was recorded in the, in the annals. It was recorded in, the, in, the, in this record of, of history. And yet nothing was done uh, for Mordecai. Uh, he's been forgotten. He's been overlooked. And, and, and Mordecai was worried about this. And he was probably worried about this more so because it reflected, it, it reflected badly on him that Mordecai had been overlooked. He ends up uh, looking like this frugal, stingy king. Not the lavish, generous king that he wants to be. And so he's desperate as the morning breaks to do something about this, to fix it. And, and as usual, this king, uh, he's not very good at thinking himself. And so uh, he looks for an advisor to, to do his thinking for him. And there's a noise in the background. So verse 4 the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows he had erected for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. So why is Haman up early? Well, because he's got Mordecai in his mind. He can't wait to get the order to have Mordecai hanged. And why is Xerxes up early? Because he's got Mordecai in his mind and he can't wait to put right this wrong that has been discovered in the book. He's, he's desperate to have Mordecai honoured, not hanged. And so Mordecai is in the minds of both of these men at the same time, and God, in his perfect timing, brings them together for this conversation. A conversation that would bring uh, salvation and honour to Mordecai, uh, and a conversation that would bring judgment down on Haman. And we'll look at the conversation in, in just a moment, um, but... Before we do, uh, let's just stand back in awe at the ways and at the works and at the timing of God. For Esther and for Mordecai, salvation for them and for all God's people, it looked absolutely impossible. Things were too far on. This whole thing had snowballed. It looked like it was irreversible. This was a law that was written in the, it was a law of the, the Medes and Persians, which could not be repealed. So there was no way out. There was no loophole to be able to manipulate. Uh, Salvation looked impossible. And with man it was impossible. But just one move of the hand of God is done. And for Haman, this evil man, he looked untouchable. You know, he's got the king eating out of his hand. Everything he wants he seems to get. But just one move of the hand of God. And Haman is done. He's finished. And this is our God. It's the point to note. Uh, Our God never changes. And... uh, as we look at how he works, we can see here that we can trust him. And we can see here that we, that we need to trust him. And very often, our trusting of God means that we have to step back and wait for him to act. Rather than come crashing forward uh, with our size 10s and putting our foot in it. Now, when we do that, when we take matters into our own hands, try and engineer our own solutions, uh, all we do is make a mess. I could tell you stories about that from my own uh, experience with my own failures, but uh, that would take a long time. But just imagine uh, the mess if either Mordecai or Esther had tried to make, uh, had tried to take things into their own hands um, before now. Imagine if Mordecai or, or Esther had tried to take on Haman in their own strength before this point. It would be a disaster. But as they wait 
for God's timing, as they wait for him to act, everything works out for the good of his people. God's timing is perfect. Fourth point, God has a sense of humour. And you can't read the next section of this chapter without seeing the dark uh, comedy of it, the way that God works. I mean, think about this. Just before Haman gets the opportunity to ask for Mordecai's death, the king says to Haman, Haman, I've got a question for you. Something, something pressing, Haman. I can see you've got something on your mind. That's going to have to wait for a moment. I've got something I want to speak to you about. And so we pick up the conversation at verse 6. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honour? And Haman, uh, who is so self-obsessed, we can just imagine him, thrilled in that moment. Who could the king delight to honour but me? This is my chance. I can have some glory for myself. Haman can wait for a minute. Uh, Mordecai can wait for a minute. I'm going to make the most of this opportunity. And so he answers the king. Uh, For the man the king delights to honour, have them bring a royal robe that the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden. And so on he goes with his his wish list. He he overegs this majorly. He's overstepping the mark with what he's asking for. He's asking to ride on the king's horse, not any horse. He's asking to wear the king's robe, not any robe. Uh, He wants to be escorted through the the city streets by one of the king's noble princes. Uh, He wants this proclamation to constantly be gone out to say what an honourable man this, this man is. And Haman is basically asking that the man that the king desires to honour be treated like a king for the day. But Haman is only asking for this because he is absolutely certain that he is that man. So we can just imagine this smug grin over Haman's face as he's putting together his wish list. Imagining himself on the the back of this horse uh, with the, the crowds cheering as he goes through the city streets. But any smile that's on Haman's face disappears very quickly when he hears what comes next because the king says in verse one go at once get the robe get the horse just as you have suggested and do all this for Mordecai the Jew and we can just imagine the blood drain out of Haman's face as he heard these words do not neglect uh, says the king uh, to do anything you've commanded you've recommended so Haman got the robe and the horse he robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what the, is done for the man the king delights to honour. And it's a Sam 2 moment. We just sang it. You know, there are, there are lots of Hamans in this world. There always has been. We read our newspapers. Uh, we, we read of them today. We see the atrocities that are going on. It's the spirit of Haman. And through every generation, in every place, we see uh, so many Hamans in this world. And they shake their fist at God. And they think they can do what they want. They think they can say what they want. They think that they are untouchable. They think that they are so far above God and God's people. And the truth is, when we encounter uh, the Hamans of this world, uh, we tend to panic. They put the fear into us. What does God do as he looks down on these little Hamans? Well, we're told in Psalm 2, uh, he laughs because he knows that ultimately uh, they will not be honoured, but they will be judged. And God is a God of justice. He knows that these same people who shake their fist and curse Christ will be those who ultimately uh, will have to give honour to the Son and bow the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord. So as we follow this this story, uh, as we see how God works with such precise timing, with such humour, with such omniscient uh, power, uh, What should this cause us to do? Well, it should cause us to trust him. It should cause us to to worship him. It should cause us to praise him. It should cause us to to thank him that we can be his children 
and that we can know his protection and his power in our lives. And if we're not God's children yet, there's anyone here or watching elsewhere who's, who's not yet one of God's children, if we are rebelling against God and his way, as Haman was, then we should do what Haman refused to do, and that's repent. You know, Haman had the opportunity here to repent. Wearsby, the commentator, uh, says, this event should have humbled Haman and forced him to change his wicked plans. As much as we detest Haman, says Wearsby, and his foul deeds, we must keep in mind that God loves sinners and wants to save them. God is long-suffering and brings various influences to bear upon people's hearts as he seeks to turn them from their evil ways. And that's what God was wanting Haman to do, to turn. But Haman wasn't for turning. He would not repent. And so judgment uh, would soon fall. And that takes us to our final point, very briefly. Uh, God's ways and higher, are higher than, than our ways. And we see that as the chapter finishes. Haman, uh, after the humiliation of what he's gone through, uh, he, he goes home with his tail between his legs. He's distraught. And his wife, uh, Zeresh, who, who always seems to be there with a word of encouragement for, for, for Haman, uh, she says to him, Haman, it's all over. You're done for. After Mordecai, verse 12, returned to the king's gate, returned to the king's gate. Uh, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin. See, there's a recognition here that the Jews worshipped God. Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. And while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. So it's all over for Haman. There's a knock at the door. Uh, the eunuchs arrived and as they hurried Haman away, he was being hurried away to face God's judgment. And we'll see the details of this as we carry on. But the, the speed and the efficiency with which God works is breathtaking. And anyone who was looking in and anyone who's still looking in on this story has to say only God can do this. Only God can take something that seems to be so far lost and turn it around so comprehensively. See, God's salvation plans, uh, his designs to deliver his people, whether it's in the book of Esther or in the book of Luke, they're, they're, they're way above anything our minds could work out. We see that here in Esther. But all that we see in Esther is a, a pointer to, to all we celebrated this morning on Easter Sunday. We see the parallels. And think about this parallel just as we, as we close. In chapter 6 of Esther, uh, we see these dark gallows that are being built to kill God's man Mordecai. And yet what we will learn in the book of Esther is that these gallows that Mordecai, that Haman was building for Mordecai, uh, would become the gallows that Haman himself would hang from. And the cross, that instrument of death, that Satan thought he would use to kill God's son, and give victory to the darkness, turned out to be the very instrument that God used to bring eternal life to all who trust God's Son. And the cross turned out to be the means through which God would use to, to overcome the darkness and the enemy of our souls once and for all. God's ways are higher than our ways. And isn't it amazing that we can look into to these things? We're told uh, by Peter in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1 and verse 12, the angels long to look into these things, but they've got no access. 
They're locked out of this salvation design. But we have access. God has unlocked the gospel message for us. He's shared it with us. He's shown it to us. He's told us the, the good news about Jesus and his love. He's told us about how he lived for us and how he died for us and how he rose for us and how he will return to take us to be with him forever if we believe. So let's uh, look into these things. Let's read these things. Let's believe these things. Let's share these things. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit be with us all now and forevermore.